Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is revival and renewal. And to talk us through this topic, we are not going to invite Charles Finney, infamous founder of the Anxious Bench and uh, source of many of the most toxic aspects of the American revivalist tradition. We are going to be looking rather at revivalism, particularly as it developed in Lutheranism through Pietism. And we are going to have two guides in particular to take us through this discussion. A father and son team, in fact, Johann Christoph Blumhardt and Christoph Friedrich Blumhardt, of which we will say more in a moment. But first of all, Dad, you... um, you're an American. <laughs> you are in some ways shaped by American religion. I'm wondering, did revivalism in the popular American sense make any inroads to your um, well-sheltered Slovak-American Missouri Synod upbringing, or were you completely safe from its uh, effects? No, I was not safe. I was not immune. Uh, uh, in those days, uh, many people, including my father, admired Billy Graham. So the Billy Graham crusade was, you know, televised and people frequently watched it. And at one particularly momentous event in my teen years, uh, I think I was maybe a senior in high school with my next brother in line, my brother Mark, we went to Yankee Stadium and attended a Billy Graham crusade. And this was as much about he and I reconciling from our sibling rivalry as uh, as finding God or something like that. But we went forward at the end for the altar call uh, and uh, uh, prayed together and stuff like that. Uh, and then a little bit later in life, uh, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, I was alternately attracted and repelled to the charismatic renewal in the Lutheran Church. So yes, I definitely had exposures to American revivalism in these forms. Well, I was far more sheltered than you were. I've I've met people who have been affected by revivalism, but I, I can't say, um, at least in the American form, I, I have ever run into it directly myself. I have um, been uh, sort of a visitor to versions of it in other parts of the world, but we'll, we'll get onto that in a minute. So, um, I mean, I'm curious, a lot of the the general disdain for American religion really centers on revivalism. It sounds like your, your one encounter with the crusade actually did you some good. Do you have any, any on balance, uh, net positive, net negative? Um, did, did, I mean, for you personally, did it have a lasting positive effect or was it moot in the end? You know, I think that my initial encounters with it, like the Billy Graham uh, crusade and, then I think at the church, hometown church, we started having Sunday evening services where we were singing the gospel hymns, which are so much more singable than some of the dreary old German tunes that we sang in the Sunday morning service. Uh, and I think that was all kind of a positive experience uh, in some ways. But in the course of time, uh, I just like many Lutherans, I developed some real allergies. The revivalism seemed to me in some, on the whole, to be anti-clerical, anti-intellectual, anti-liturgical, anti-sacramental, 
uh, anti-ecclesial. You know, it just seemed to be against everything that I was becoming interested in as a budding evangelical Catholic. So uh, I've never lost the evangelical side of that equation. I think it's there, but I think it's definitely correlated with a, a firm conviction about the Catholicity of Christianity, uh, which would include uh, an ordained ministry, uh, giving our minds to the discipline of theology as a way of giving our minds to God, liturgical and sacramental worship, and a firm conviction that uh, the church is the body of Christ on the earth. You know, that's interesting. I never thought of it, but maybe what for you was the evangelical Catholic ideal, you know, combination balance is, um, in my, my own way, what I come to realize is that church and revival's mutual need of each other and how they, they spoil without each other. That's, I, I hadn't made that connection. So I'll, I'll get back to that. So Yeah, I, I think we're both on the same page in that regard, Sarah. Go ahead. Okay, well, so let me tell you how I got to this because it was had nothing to do with Billy Graham and not even anything to do with um, when I was in seminary and met a lot of heirs of more revivalistic traditions. Um, for me, it started in Madagascar. I'm sure I've mentioned before on the show that I've, I've been there. Uh, I've been twice now. And um, the first time I went because I was in, invited to give a, you know, kind of a, a short course at the the sort of senior seminary. They have a bunch of regional Lutheran seminaries and then a, a main one in the town of Fianarantsua in the center of the country. And um, <laughs> I, I had this um, startling moment where one of the students that uh, Andrew and I had become friendly with at one point said to us very sincerely asking about our home church, how is your revival going? And I went, um, we, we don't have a revival. <laughs> and then this student looked at us in bewilderment and said, how can you have a church without a revival? <laughs> and after spending a week or two in Madagascar, I thought, gee, maybe you can't. <laughs> so what's yeah. really amazing about Madagascar and its revivalism is that, um, it started very soon after the church itself started in Madagascar, within about 30 years of the first major waves of conversions in the late 19th century, they already had their first revival. And I think this is the, the first point to make, which is that um, revivalism does not need to be way, way, way downstream to a completely dead and institutionalized Christendom. I think uh, rightly understood it in the in this Malagasy sense, revival is simply the business of keeping the faith actually alive generation to generation. It does not have to be um, anti-institutional or in response to an institution in big trouble. But then what's interesting is that in Madagascar, they've actually had four major revivals um, among the, the two big Protestant churches, the Reformed one and the Lutheran one, um, one from the Reformed, three from the Lutherans, starting from like the 1890s. And the, the last one started around uh, 1941, I think, with Neni Lava, who we'll talk about another time. Um, but they're all still going. <laughs> and I think this is really amazing. Again, from an American mindset, a revival is something that happens in a tent for a week maybe and then shuts down and moves <laughs> on but actually their revivals are so long-standing that they actually have a department of revivals within the malagasy lutheran church structure but explain that sarah explain that to us what does it mean that a revival keeps on going i i, I can't i can't imagine what that means 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there there's some uh, slippage in the terminology between the two places, but what it means, I think, is internally they saw that you have to have this dialectic, let's call it, between the ecclesiastical form of, of the gospel, let's say, the one that, as you said, has the ministry and has the sacraments and has the buildings and has the life of the mind and the study and the Greek and Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. But in order for that to live, it also has to have this other aspect of gospel life, which is where people gather together, they pray together spontaneously, they lay on hands, they do healing ministries, they cast out demons, they form people not for official ordained sacramental ministry, but for all kinds of ministries. Actually, part of the course I did there was to have the students tell me all the offices of ministry that receive some kind of blessing and recognition from the church. And they came up with, I think, six that weren't pastor. They had like catechist and exorcist and deacon and evangelist. And there were more, maybe chaplain. I don't know. There might've even been one more. And um, each of these four revivals actually ends up having its own formative practices and um, sometimes the gear that they wear. And I think a lot of Westerners go into that um, and study it and and they want to make it into like a, a parallel ecclesiastical structure or like somehow in competition with it. But it seems to me from my own observation and conversations with people who have spent a lot of time there, it's really not... Uh, it's not ecclesiastical, it's revival. It's a revival form of the gospel rather than an ecclesiastical form of the gospel. And there's very open doors between the two. In fact, most people who end up becoming ordained pastors have first become some kind of lay leader in the revival movements. Um, But I, I think that's a really helpful model because it's not... So often what revivals do is they pull people out of the church and then they end up starting a new denomination and then they turn into the dead ecclesiasticism that they criticized in the first place. And so there's just this <laughs> constant hamster wheel of reinventing the the gospel, the church, <laughs> the revival all over again. And, you know, as as I'm sure you've seen, it, it leaves a lot of people burned out and end up just they get flung off the wheel entirely and leave church because they can't sustain it anymore. What you've said about Malagasy Lutheran Church, it strikes me that the revival is spawned out of Scandinavian Lutheranism and the relationship of Scandinavian pietism uh, to the Lutheran Church, uh, and that's the historical background. In other words, it's not American revivalism. Uh, it's a very distinct phenomenon from uh, American revivalism. And I think, Sarah, next year we need to do a podcast on the history of American revivalism to kind of uh, make people aware of where American evangelicalism emerged from and uh, perhaps what's positive and negative about that history. But uh, uh, for purposes of today, your distinction between revival case study, um, the uh, Scandinavian revivals, uh, the Bloomhearts in South Germany, and the Malagasy Lutheran Church, and you've mentioned Ethiopia and Tanzania, I think, as well. You know, all of this is coming out of a distinctly different history than what Americans understand as revivalism. 
Yeah, that's a really important distinction. So the the indeed the the ones in Madagascar, they were evan- the Lutherans were evangelized by Norwegians and Norwegian Americans that definitely had that Haugean pietist piety there. Though interestingly, all of the revival leaders were indigenous Malagasy. Um, in fact, the first one had um, started having visions of Jesus before she'd even heard of the gospel or been baptized. Um, wow. But and and the the missionaries had a hard time actually accepting the revivals at first. It was definitely a, a long period of testing that went on before they were able to uh, accept them as authentic. So even the the pietists uh, who went there as missionaries weren't quite prepared for, for what happened in Madagascar. It definitely added a lot of its own elements. And as you said, the same in, in Ethiopia and Tanzania that had a mainly Swedish and German missionaries, respectively. But yes, I think the the, the point to move on with now is that the, the heritage of pietism and its form of revivalism, even though you can trace out some lines of connection through, through like Moravian pietism to John Wesley to Methodism to American revivalism, they do have kind of a different lineage and, and texture to them, let's say. And that's why I think um, the Bloomhearts offer a nice um, avenue of access, let's say, for ecclesiastically oriented lovers of the gospel who just uh, react with, as you said, an, an allergy to all things revivalistic. This might be a point of entry that um, offers some possibilities for thinking through the genuine good out of out of revivalistic um, impulses and how to harness them for the, the work of the gospel. Very good. And I think that, you know, uh, I think you began this episode by saying true revival has God as its subject, right? I think that, that that's a very important point. Uh, uh, point that should be emphasized at this point, because it really refers to the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who Jesus says in John 3, blows where he will, that's not in our control. That was Luther's metaphor that the gospel comes through like a thunderstorm, which is frightening, chaotic, thunder and lightning, but it's also rain that renews and refreshes the earth. A very good image, I think, for what revival is. And the Augsburg Confession does not mechanically claim that the word and the sacraments uh, automatically uh, do do uh, uh, revival. It claims that they do God's reviving revivif- work of vivification, mortification and vivification. Uh, they do the cross and resurrection of Jesus Ubi et quando deum vis, deo visum est, where and when it pleases God. So revival, to say that God is the subject of revival is to affirm a truth that I think a lot of complacent Lutherans have forgotten, embedded in their own Augsburg Confession, that uh, the word and the sacrament have their promised effect not automatically, not by some magic of a performative utterance or something like that, but they do their work where and when it pleases God. Of course, that raises issues of, 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 of human freedom and divine sovereignty, which we don't need to get into here. But if we're going to make this distinction between revival and revivalism, the former has God as its sole and sovereign subject. The latter is an attempt to mechanize revival and turn it into the ecclesiastical machinery.
Yeah, actually, I, I think that that's so nicely put the way you explained that all there, Dad. And I think the fact is that both, as I'm calling it, the ecclesiastical form of the gospel and the revival form of the gospel can both be very frustrated that God gets to do it when and where he wills. And therefore, we're going to make it now because that's when we want it to happen. And um, yeah. we see both high-handed church and a nutty revival are both that impatience with God. So, okay, well, that's great. So let's move from there then into into these case studies and um, talk about what and where God wills. And unexpectedly, that is the story surrounding Johann Christoph Blumhardt. So I'm going to give a little a little um, bio, biographical overview of what turned him into a, a revivalist. And um, and then we can talk about it before we go on to his son. So um, just to give you some orientation, this is in Swabia, southwestern Germany. And uh, the elder Blumhardt was born in 1805, died 1880. So he, all, he lived all within the 19th century. So he was... Um, a pastor of the Württemberg Lutheran Church. Um, he was a, an okay student and, um, you know, more or less within the church structure. It's worth noting that um, at the time to be a pastor was also to be a civic administrator and there was a huge paperwork load that went with it. And although Blumhardt was drawn into the ministry, clearly he had far stronger like missionary evangelistic outreach impulses than the job normally admitted. Um, he ended up going Going. He had had various. He had to wait quite a long time, I think, before he finally got a call. He was probably a little bit too fervorous for the state church at the time, but he uh, he finally ended up in this um, small, no account village of Mertlingen in uh, Swabia, uh, probably as as um, unappealing and unimportant as a uh, Bethlehem or Nazareth. And um, <laughs> after he'd been there some time he got notice from some of his parishioners that there was a household of four siblings. They were orphaned and weird stuff was happening there. And they, the siblings were acting weird. Most of all, uh, one of the daughters, uh, Gottlieben Dittus. And um, so he was basically called in to investigate and before long found out all sorts of disturbing things, discovered how extensive occult practices were um, in his parish. And, um, it's the the symptoms that Gottlieben especially, but also her siblings manifested were disturbing in the extreme. Um, uh, wounds, um, self-mutilation, attempts at suicide, shards of glass and nails emerging out of her skin, violent vomiting, weird voices. Um, you know, he tried taking her out of the house and seeing if it was the house that was the problem. This was kind of at the height of the spiritualist craze. Um, and uh, he tried... Um, to talk with her, but she would react extremely negatively to his presence. Um, and, um, and then what appeared to be some kind of demonic force in her would try to negotiate with him. And very quickly he, he realized that he could not be sucked into conversations with demonic powers, um, or, or investigate them as he, uh, some of the more spiritualistically oriented, um, colleagues of his would have done. So this went on for some time, no improvement, no help. His, his wife got involved, other parishioners, you know, leaders of the church tried to, to pray, got leave it out of this, and it, it wasn't working. Um, and then finally, at one point, um, Bloomheart is with her and she, you know, they're coping with all these weird manifestations. And finally, Bloomheart says to her, okay, Gottlieben, place your hands together and pray 
Lord Jesus, help me. We have seen long enough what the devil can do. Now we desire to see what Jesus can do. And from that point onward, he determined that the only strategy, so to speak, he would take with her would be prayer and patience, nothing else. He would not try any um, incantations, even of prayers, no, you know, laying on of hands or um, gatherings of other people or conversation or whatever. It would just be only prayer and just calling upon Jesus to rescue her. As it was, the the whole thing with her lasted for about a year and three quarters. It just went on and on and on. And Bloomhart was very distressed and all of his, his um, friends and helpers in the congregation. And meanwhile, he was also quite distressed because he had been trying to basically start a revival in his church <laughs> and nothing was working. The The congregation seemed very spiritually dead and responsive. And then at the, the last night of the year, 1843, Gottlieben and her sister Katerina were together with Blumhartz and um, some, some kind of spiritual crisis was reached and Katerina shouted out in a strange voice, Jesus is Victor. And that was it. It was over for all four of the siblings, no more manifestations, weirdnesses, voices, wounds, suicidal attempts or anything. And they all just settled down. Jesus seemed to indeed have the victory over whatever force held them. And in fact, um, the recovery was so complete that in time, um, Gottlieben became the kindergarten teacher for the, the church school they started. And later on, she became one of the Bloomhart's most important helpers. She married, had children of her own, led what seems to be a normal and pious life ever after. Um, now, um, I'll, I'll get on to the rest of Bloomhart's career in a second. I think we need to acknowledge at this point that it is, first of all, hard to believe a lot of this and easy to psychoanalyze it. <laughs> I read a, a really right. excellent biography of, of Bloomhart that, that really... Um, goes through the best available explanations and evidences for all of this. And um, it seems that Bloomhart was very well aware of the possibility of being suckered or deceived. Um, and um, he that's why he brought in a team to help him try to figure out what was going on. And the transformation of Gottlieben before and after was so dramatic, but also so long lasting. It seems that however you want to explain what happened, um, something really did happen. And somehow it was connected to the, the, the prayer and patience of the church community around her. So I'll pause there and then I'll, I'll go on and say the rest of, of Bloomhart's life after, after that turning point. Well, Sarah, that's a wonderful summary. Uh, it, it, I want to make several comments about it. What uh, Johann Christoph realized was that healing um, is not going to be accomplished by occult means, by magical means, by incantations or rituals or ceremonies. Uh, but instead, there was simply prayer. Now, what's the difference between prayer and magic? I think that's a really rich and interesting theological theme. What's the difference between prayer and magic? Well, magic assumes uh, an occult or secret knowledge of hidden causal powers. Uh, there's a, a belief that there's a, a lever somewhere that you can pull, a button somewhere that you can push, uh, if with the uh, magical knowledge of magic, you can find that button and pull the lever and you can cause the healing to occur. That's magic. Prayer, especially Christian prayer, 
is quite a bit different because, it, once again, the sovereignty belongs to God. Prayer is a petition to one whose will is his own and not in our power. That's why pious prayers always conclude their petitions according to your will, not mine, on the model of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Uh, your will be done. Uh, uh, your will be done. And prayer, therefore, and the petition of prayer is based upon an assurance uh, that Jesus invites us into his own relationship with his heavenly Father and pray to pray in that spirit, in that purpose, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, with the assurance that God's will is good and that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. But it's not magic, because God's concrete will and purposes are not immediately translatable into our desires. And we make our petitions known, we invoke uh, God's love and freedom, and we trust. And that means we embrace also the prayers that we don't think have been answered in the way that we desire. That's quite a difference. Yeah, it's interesting. What you described as the magical version of prayer is exactly the the mechanistic prosperity gospel of name it and claim it. And, you know, don't have any negative thoughts because they'll come true, but have positive thoughts. And then, you know, God will be, his hand will be forced into giving you what you want. Very good. Yeah, good connection. Prosperity gospel. Okay, a second uh, thing I want to point out here is that this shriek of the demonic power, Jesus is the victor. Uh, uh, became the great theme not only of Johann Christoph Blumhard's subsequent ministry, which you're about to talk about, but it became the takeaway of Karl Barth. Uh, in the early theology of Karl Barth was much inspired by the Blumharts, father and son, but for different reasons. When, when Bart talks about the elder Blumhart, Johann Christoph, whom you've just described, uh, he says that this uh, serene conviction uh, that uh, even though the demonic powers, the powers and principalities still uh, attempt to rebel and rage against the coming of God's kingdom, uh, the gospel is that Jesus has won the victory in principle and the manifestation and power of this victory is surely coming. Jesus is the victor, a great theme for Karl Barth, uh, and uh, that he got from, especially from the older Blumhardt. And uh, the third thing I want to point out is the difference between Barth and Bultmann's uh, response to, to the story that you just narrated. Uh, Boltzmann uh, just angrily dismissed the whole thing as pure mythology, pure nonsense. You know, just and, and don't anybody take take it seriously because this will uh, uh, take us back into an outmoded worldview or something like that. Uh, Karl Barth has a much more nuanced response. He says there are three possible explanations. One would be the explanation of what he called at that time depth psychology. Another would be the primitive mythology that Bultmann so uh, uh, sharply rejected without further ado. And the third would be 
both are true in their own way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, But what I think that means is without getting involved in a lot of superstition, uh, what we can say very emphatically is that the sinful structures of malice and injustice, uh, according to the Christian doctrine of human sinfulness, genuinely corrupt the earth and life upon it. And these corruptions can penetrate into the psyches of people and take possession of them. Uh, And, uh, you know, sometimes when we see horrendous crimes or terrible barbaric acts, we just shake our head in disbelief and say, that's not human. Something inhuman has taken over that human being to cause her or him to do such horrible things. And I think uh, some kind of interpretation that is not reductionistic one way or the other, but kind of Karl Barth's both end is the right right way to uh, approach this problem. Oh, I think that is so wise. Um, and now that you say it, I remember the first reference I ever saw to Bloom Hearts was in in Bart. And I was at the time like, oh, how interesting. Who are these guys? It took me a long time to catch up. You know, it, it any any true theological answer has to take into account all of human experience. So indeed, like if you were possessed by a demon, wouldn't that mess up with your like psychology and your body and your social relations? Like how could it not? What strikes me actually almost as much as anything in this story is that Bloomhart kept at it for a year and three quarters, you know, and he was someone yeah. who wanted, who clearly wanted to see tremendous things and great progress and believed in Jesus as victor and yet jesus did not manifest his victory for a long time but he did not give up on on this woman or her siblings and in their distress and he brought in the church to keep trying even with little hope that anything would ever change for the better i mean not to be reductionistic either but to me that is as as miraculous an aspect of the story as any other well and it's also isn't it living proof of faith active in love faith active in love that Love doesn't quit, even on the most uh, broken and destitute people. And love is concrete and practical in that kind of pastoral care. I think that's uh, uh, the, uh, another way of expressing the theology of the cross, uh, that uh, we don't um, rely on instantaneous miracles to relieve us from the burden of love. But we carry one another's burdens, and that's precisely how we fulfill the law of Christ. And through that long, slow, patient work of faith active and love, uh, the healing uh, may come about. Yeah, in God's own time. So what happened from there is that um, after this night's... um, Bloomhart went to his church and preached the um the I think Chris uh, New Year's Eve service on the Magnificat and called Gottlieben someone upon someone lowly upon whom the Lord had looked with favor and uh, you know he talked about it and preached about it obviously everyone in a small town knew this was going on and it took him a few months to realize that it was beginning to happen and there were spontaneous um, confessions to him from people who had never come near him or the church before. His confirmands organized an extra like Bible and prayer study. Um, People from other towns started coming. And before long, um, Bloomhart and his wife and their parsonage were swamped with um, pilgrims, let's call them, from Mertlingen and beyond, asking him to pray for them, heal them, release them, confessing what they'd been doing wrong from 
you know, pretty uh, pedestrian uh, sins to occultic ones. And um, this went on for about eight years. And before long, um, here's another thing about how prayer is not magic. Bloomheart had so many prayer requests coming to him that he finally just had to like, he said basically what it came down to is he would just utter the name and offer it up to God. And then he had to move on. There was no way, just literally numerically, no way that he could devote the necessary amount of time. And so, yeah, so there was about uh, eight years of this to the point that Bloomheart simply could not keep up with his own parish with all these, you know, other people coming in and like I mentioned, the huge administrative load. So he started looking and eventually found uh, a huge old estate called Bad Bull. Bad in German doesn't mean bad. It means springs. Um, It was a former health resort that stood empty and he was able to uh, buy it or lease it or somebody who believed in him gave it to him. It was 129 rooms and he and his whole family moved there. Gottlieben moved there as well and became one of the administrators. and so un- until his death in uh, in 1880, so from, I guess that's what, uh, 1852 to 1880, Bloomheart had this non-parish-based healing ministry that brought in everyone from destitute people who couldn't pay their own way to, you know, wealthy princesses and heiresses and stuff like that who would come and stay and people who were full-on doubters to people who were struggling believers and they would come for a day or for three months. Um, he would always, uh, they would have a common meal. His his wife uh, administered and organized the the cooking and serving. Um, they had a huge staff um, and, you know, people were free to wander the grounds, to pray together, to hear Bloomheart's preaching. And, um, yeah, over the years, it just became a major site for that people were drawn to to go to get this kind of healing they desired. And, and again, his, his emphasis was repeatedly on Jesus as victor. Now, obviously, I admire Bloomheart greatly, but here, let me reveal the... <laughs> <laughs> the side that I'm not so crazy about, namely his uh, millenarian fervor. He also really thought that um, the revelation of Jesus as Victor and Gottlieb and Dittus was the sign that the end was near. I just, I, I just got to say for the record, Christians, that we've been predicting the end for 2000 years and we've always been wrong. How about we just stop the prediction business? He'll come when he comes like a thief in the night. You're not going to know ahead of time. Anyway, this was very popular in the 19th century. And um, so Bloomheart, the elder Bloomheart really thought Jesus was going to come again. And when Gottlieben died of natural causes um, at an older age, it was really a blow to him and his family because she was like the living embodiment of this inbreaking work of the kingdom. And now she just died an ordinary death without Jesus coming first. And then Bloomheart, as he came, you know, approached his own death, he finally realized like, oh, he's He's really not coming before I die. And it, it, he took it hard, let's say, but he accepted it. He never doubted that Jesus was victor, but um, I could do without the dispensationalist aspects um, wrapped up. And um, it, it maybe there's just something about those who have profound missional passion tend to also have this dispensationalist stuff. But I have to say, it really troubles me that like, it's more exciting, more worthy, more desirable to engage in outreach and missions if you think you live in the blessed generation that's going to see Jesus come again and that it's not good enough on its own. That that kind of, um, that, that troubles me. But anyway, okay, I've said enough. Yeah, I, I think here again, it's helpful uh, to talk about the deliteralization of these apocalyptic beliefs which is not the same as demythologizing. Mm. 
deliteralization means that the reference of the talk about the end of the world, the reference is strictly theological. It refers to the God who comes from God in order to include us in the life of God. So you have to distinguish between representation, that's the imagery, the apocalyptic imagery, above all the image of the end of time or something like that, and deliteralize that imagery so you don't take it in a worldly sense but take it in a spiritual and theological sense as referring to God, giving us knowledge of God. And when you do that, the coming of the kingdom uh, is not the end of time, but it's the time of the end, breaking in uh, and uh, uh, disrupting the chronological sequence of one doggone thing after another, adding up to sound and fury signifying nothing. But uh, in this event of the thunderstorm, the revival, the renewal that we're trying to talk about today, uh, through the gospel, the kingdom comes like an incision, like a knife slicing into business as usual, upsetting things. And uh, Luther said the word of God cannot be preached without causing a tumult in the world. And I think this is kind of the, the right way to think about this. The kingdom of God, the reign of God comes when God's will is done upon the earth, and that happens preeminently when the gospel is spoken and the Spirit sovereignly gives the repentance and faith that correspond to it. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. And I, I think, again, the temptation is instead of letting the word of God be the in, a knife that makes the incision, the uh, the revival preachers want to be the ones who hold the knife and make the incision. And, <laughs> and right. Uh, <laughs> You know, for, for for again, forcing God's hand somehow. And I, I, I'm sometimes perplexed. Is it like such an enormous fear of the future, which, you know, is not unjustified in our, our world, that you just want Jesus to come and end this whole thing so that your children won't be harmed? Or is it some kind of greed that you actually don't want your children and grandchildren to have their human lives because you need so badly to be in, in the special group that got to see the... I, I don't know. There, there, there are... I have like so so little sympathy for um, millennialisms and uh, dispensationalisms that I, I probably have been going on more than I need to. That's what we'll talk about next year on a podcast on the history of American revivalism, because all of these uh, millennial, post-pre-millennial beliefs come out of a certain uh, formation uh, of 18th and 19th century American religion. And I think to know that history is very important. But we'll get to that next year. All right. Well, in uh, Johann Blumhardt's son, Christoph Blumhardt, I'll try to just call him Christoph to make it less confusing, um, we see already this kind of... Um, correction, self-correction coming uh, generationally, if, if not so much personally. So Christoph grew up with Gottlieb in there. You know, he lived at Bad Bull and he inherited the ministry when his father died. He also became a pastor. So he was definitely formed by this milieu of, of the healing ministry, of the, the Jesus victory ministry. But uh, he became disenchanted with it over time. And I think this points to the, the fact that all revivals Ha even true revivals have a shelf life and they begin to spoil and they become 
add-ons to people's lives rather than making the gospel the center of their lives. So uh, he, he became less and less convinced that people were actually hearing what he wanted them, he intended them to hear. So he uh, he had taken up preaching tours, but by 1888, he quit them. Let me see, when was he born? He was born in 1842. So in his, his late 40s, he was done with that. And he actually left Bod Bowl in 1894. You can imagine what a thing this was for, uh, for you know, the great Bloomhart's son to abandon the, the great ministry of Bad Bull. Um, and basically the shift of orientation for Christoph was from Jesus is victor over the devil to Jesus is victor over the Christian. <laughs> and so <laughs> I guess you could say Christoph so, saw acutely that the corruption within deep within the heart of the person and that a lot of the appeal to Jesus' victory over sickness or demonic forces was actually a way of dodging the, the final and hard resistance to God that resided inside of each and every human soul. And he became more and more convinced that a lot of a lot of people's search for healing was really ultimately selfish. It was not self-transcending. And so he comes to the point where his his new motto is is not Jesus is victor, which he didn't deny, but his new orientation was die so that Jesus might live. Um, I'm drawing this all, by the way, from an excellent study of, of Christoph Blumhart by Simeon Zoll. I'll, I'll refer to it in the show notes. So die so that Jesus must live. So the orientation now is much more towards um, uh, personal um giving up of of all of your sins rather than being uh, liberated from from the outside but the inside not being touched um but then too um <laughs> christoph's career took another funny turn after that he actually was about the first clergyman in all of Germany to join the Socialist Party. Um, now, I know listeners will be astonished to hear I could say anything positive about anyone who joined the Socialist Party, given my my well-documented aversion to communism. However, this is very early on, <laughs> late, late 1800s, early 1900s. It's before the Bolsheviks, and people saw the, the full extent. But it is true that even then, socialism was the atheistic party. So for a clergyman to join was so impossibly scandalous that that uh, he was defrocked, basically. And it seems that it kind of came as a relief for him. He just, he was so burned out both by his disenchantment with the legacy of his father's ministry and with the state of the state church, again, a, a, a dead institution in many ways, that it was just as well. So he didn't, um, from 1900 to 1906, he was a representative to the Württemberg parliaments. But during that time, he made the astonishing discovery that people in politics can be just as corrupt and self-serving as people in religion. Who would have thought? And that even this <laughs> movement to try to address the desperate plight of the workers and their bodily needs, which, you know, having grown up at a healing ministry, uh, Christoph was attentive to, he discovered that even pretending to help the poor can really be a, a path to self-aggrandizement on the part of the uh, socialist politician. So and anyway, he ended up withdrawing from public life as well. And the final kind of moment of his life worth noting is that he was the only Protestant clergyman of any prominence whatsoever who spoke out against 
the outbreak of the First World War and the militaristic fervor that swept across Germany and Austria and that all the churches um, gladly backed and endorsed and said was God's movement. Christoph said, this is not God's work. Uh, this war is is absolutely diabolically opposed to God's work. And of course, retrospectively, he was recognized to be a prophet on that score. So that is Christoph. Dad, what do you have to say? Well, you know, thank you, Sarah. You turned me on to Simeon Zoll's excellent book, which I've also read. And I think after I'm done with my comments on what you're saying, we should also spend a little time on Zoll's uh, attempt to mediate between a Pentecostal and charismatic theology and the Lutheran theology of the cross over the issues of experience and the uh, external word uh, of the scriptures and so forth. But let me just say a couple of things. The discovery of religious egotism by the younger Bloomhart uh, basically was that what was motivating people to piety was the base, the same old what's in it for me, myself, and I. And he became very disenchanted that even these manifestations of God's healing power did not lead to genuine repentance, conversion, change of life, uh, and that even uh, Bod Bull was becoming uh, uh, what I call uh, part of the religion business. Uh, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. That's the statement of Jesus upon the cleansing of the temple, uh, from which I take this idea of the religion business. And I think it's a prophetic witness, not only to individual religious egotism, but to the way American denominations organize themselves, that they are in the business of religion. Uh, uh, and they have turned what should be a house of prayer for all peoples into a den of thieves, uh, exploiting people's weaknesses and fears uh, and creating a contrastive identity machinery uh, you know, which can include something like us true blue Lutherans against those backy Pentecostals. That's part <laughs> of the same religion business, you know, that is we build ourselves up by putting others down uh, rather than uh, penetrating to genuine difference in a dialogical situation where you can at least achieve disagreement. I think the other thing I want to comment on uh, is there was a kind of this-worldliness uh, to the both the elder and the younger Bloomhart that I think uh, is important to affirm here. It was based on the biblical insight that we don't go to heaven when we die. The kingdom of heaven comes to earth in God's good time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, the Bloomharts, uh, with their healing ministry, were affirming the integral bodiliness of the human creature's life. You can't have a life without a body, and therefore health is just as much a concern of the gospel as the forgiveness of sins. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Body and soul, both and, not either or. And so the younger Bloomhart was mocking what he called the typical Protestant sacrament of death, 
this very sarcastic expression, <laughs> the, the sacrament of death. That is to say, um, I'm living so that I get to go to heaven when I die. Do you want to go to heaven? Yes, I want to go to heaven. And so I live my whole life in a state of resentment and, and um, exclusion from the concerns of this world, uh, hoping that my reward is in heaven, the sacrament of death. And Bloomhart was one of the ones who saw that in the New Testament, the coming of God's reign is on the very earth on which the cross of Jesus stood. Now, again, as earlier, we want to deliteralize that. We're not talking about um, uh, uh, fireworks in the sky and all that kind of thing. We're talking about the event of the thunderstorm of the Word of God and the Spirit of God shaking things up uh, and causing the kinds of repentance and, and, and faith in which the vitality of the church actually exists. Die so that Jesus may live. That was your right. That was his exhortation. So, okay. So let me just, we'll have a very quick excursus here. That nothing you said, I actually disagree with. But I realized in looking again at the Bloomhearts and their passion for the kingdom of God and like realizing that the kingdom of God is clearly a very captivating image for real Christians, unlike me. Um, I just, <laughs> I can't, so I never grew up with the, you know, my job is to not be so bad that I can't get to heaven. I did not grow up with that piety, but I did see enough of the, um, this worldly kingdom of God piety. I don't know which is worse, premillennialism or postmillennialism. They're both awful. I'm an amillennialist, but the, the fact <laughs> is like in, in my amillennialism, I have no, no fruitful place to put this idea of the kingdom of God. It doesn't, captivate me. And I just clearly for the Bloomhearts and lots of, of people I know and admire, this really means something, but I can't get to it either way. I can't get to it as either only heaven hereafter and therefore has nothing to do with earth. Or if it's on earth, then, you know, we're working to make it happen. And then that's why we have to vote for this party and do this ministry and change yep. people's minds. And then it becomes actually the resentment rather than being directed towards my, my unworldly life. It's my resentment is towards all the people who will not get with the program already. And therefore we'd have have the kingdom. So uh, in, in two minutes or less, tell me how I can love the kingdom of God idea again between that Scylla and Charybdis. I think you and all readers should find in your libraries the book of a hundred years ago by Johannes Weiss, uh, The Kingdom of God and the Proclamation of Jesus, uh, which was the discovery that the kingdom of God in Jesus's proclamation is fundamentally juxtaposed against the regnum diaboli, the kingdom of the devil. It is an apocalyptic notion. Uh, the kingdom of God is on the march, like Joshua and the armies of Israel following the Ark of the Covenant as it transverses the Jordan River and approaches the walled city of Jericho and circles it. Uh, and then, contrary to all usual military stratagems, uh, exposing itself to the inspection of the enemy. In fact, Joshua makes the soldiers lie down to be circumcised so that they're in pain for several days <laughs> and vulnerable to an, a, 
the, the inhabitants of Jericho sallying forth and slaughtering them. So this wild, this fabulous story of how the kingdom of God breaks in to the armed walled cities of, of Canaan, uh, who are extensions of Egyptian imperial power, uh, how the kingdom of God breaks in to break up these structures of malice and injustice, liberate the denizens, the inhabitant of Jericho, Rahab the prostitute, being one, the one that is singled out uh, for salvation from within these structures and so forth. That's the kingdom of God. It's a dramatic uh, uh, expression for the, not for the end of time, but for the time of the end, impending on, impinging on, uh, breaking into uh, business as usual in this world. So maybe it's more like at the at the very end of the epistle of James, he says, if any of you pulls back someone who has been deceived, uh, you know, he will be saved. It's something more like that. The kingdom of God is every time a, a, a lost or deceived soul is wrenched back out of the devil's grip and back into God's. Absolutely. It's whenever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I'll work on that. So let's let's now take a couple minutes just to talk about Azal's study of of Christoph Blumhart, which again we both found so incredibly um, fruitful. Uh, let me ask you this question. So one of the things Azal is trying to do is, as you said, um, sort out. Christoph Blumhardt as a mediating force between Pentecostal and Lutheran, let's say, impulses or concerns. And what he identifies is that what um, Christoph Blumhardt most has in common with Luther, though probably not from direct reading, uh, he seems to have arrived at it um, more uh, independently through his own life experience, is an acute awareness of the problem of religious self-deception. And that is tends to be where the, the anxieties and concerns about Pentecostal enthusiasm, uh, revivalism, and all that thing is most likely to come from. And um, Christoph was, was very acute in penetrating into that. Um, but And so um, so what uh, Zoll suggests is that what Christoph charts out is a way of making better use of the concept of experience that Lutherans often say, you know, experience is not a valid source of revelation, though that has a specific reference like, um, you know, uh, not new revelations like uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Muhammad would claim to have. That's, I think that's the, the kind of revelation Luther is most concerned about that's detached from the word. And that Christoph Blumhardt was actually a great proponent of what Zoll calls negative charismatic experience, which is that encounter with God and the word of God actually exposes to you the terrible truth about yourself, not your, your health and wealth, let's say. And he finds that, um, you know, that that is a point of connection that Luther in general would be more positive towards like that, that experience. Um, so oh, l let me start with that. And, and why don't you respond first? I have a, a question about Zoll's interpretation, but I want to come back to it in a minute. Yeah, I was really excited that Zoll was picking up on the younger Bloomhart's attraction to the verse in John 16 about the promised uh, paraclete, the promised, I like to translate paraclete as prosecuting attorney. Uh, the promised prosecuting attorney who will convict the world concerning righteousness, sin, and judgment. And uh, 
So Zal sees that Blumhard seizes upon this verse uh, for this uh, uh, theology of negative, what he calls negative experience, namely that the primary manifestation of the spirit is this conviction, this profound, mortifying conviction of egotism, even in the mask of religion, of business as usual, even in the business of religion, right? And that the spirit, uh, the real sign of authenticity of spirit is the the experience of finding oneself utterly undone before the holiness of God. Uh, And I think that genuinely does connect with Luther's early theology of the cross, the Heidelberg Disputation, and its teaching that uh, uh, when people call good evil and evil good, they don't understand the good of the cross. And the good of the cross is precisely its critique, its mortifying critique of our egotism, be it in secular or in religious formations. So I'm very, very, very keen on that. And I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I really, I was attracted to that too. And I thought that was an excellent um, connection and development. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is, is all, as I read him, seems to assert that Luther himself would not permit any um, revelation or experience of God that was not directly mediated by uh, reading scripture, hearing scripture, or receiving the sacraments. And I know that there is a kind of Lutheranism that says that, but to me, I, as in my reading of Luther, he was not nearly as, as stringently, let's say, literalistic about the way it is. I mean, for Luther, the the word is something that is that gets incorporated into you and and carried into you. So, like, um, it seems to me that Luther would have allowed a great deal more experience of God, negative or positive, that was you know the result of your whole Christian formation. It didn't have to be happening exactly while you were reading the Bible. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think there are passages in the Genesis commentary, as I recall where Luther says, I'm glad that the the fathers had these direct experiences of hearing God's voice and conversing with God face to face, because it would scare the bejesus out of me. And I, I, know, I don't want that for me. Not, not for me. I'm glad they had it and it's written down for our sakes and that's good enough for me. Uh, you know, Luther does express thoughts like that. But, you know, Luther blows hot and cold on a whole number of such things. Uh, <laughs> as Zoll himself points out, Luther can talk very positively of Christian experience. Right, uh, right. It all depends upon what context it's put into. Uh, and so I think that uh, there would, for Luther, the, the, the text from John 16 needs to be balanced by 1 John 4, 1 to 5. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Now, that that verse is very interesting because it assumes that there are a variety of spirits and a variety of spiritual experiences. It's just, it's it's taken for granted that Christian life uh, is constantly exposed to all sorts of uh, gospels and all sorts of spirits, and uh, the what the what the Christian 
is equipped to do, according to 1 John 4, is to test the spirits for whether or not they are the Holy Spirit of Jesus and his Father. And that's how you connect the external word, which concerns Jesus and his Abba Father, the God of Israel, and the spirit that proceeds from them, and see whether that is the spirit that's speaking in your religious experience or it's some other spirit. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And I, I would say that on the um, the ecclesiastical or catechetical expression of the gospel, I mean, the whole point that we spend so much time in church and repeating things and reading the same passages of scripture over and over is not so that, you know, the the magical, dazzling experience happens right then, like it can only happen in church or when you're reading the Bible, but so that it is ever more deeply engraved on your whole being and you you carry it with you. You know, even when I'm not reading the Bible, the Bible is like so deep inside of me and, you know, the sacraments and the whole life of the faith that I've experienced. So to I, I think setting up some sort of artificial guardrails around where you you can and can't have the experience, I think that is missing the point. It's, as you said, the, the context of the experience, the interpretation of the experience, the point to which it's put. So like I mentioned um, earlier, Neni Lava, this uh, uh, woman in Madagascar who was the founder of the the fourth big revival, she was having visions of Jesus before she had ever heard the gospel. Um, so, like, I, I can see how a certain kind of real strict literalist would be really alarmed by that and say, no, that's not allowed to happen. You can't have visions of Jesus until you know who Jesus is. But it was exactly the visions of Jesus that led her when she finally did encounter the church and the gospel and started learning from scripture about Jesus that she could recognize, oh, that who has is who has been calling to me all this time. And so her conversion was total and instantaneous because the way had been prepared. Now, if, you know, if that vision had led to, uh, you know, some some sort of pagan or some other religious expression, then we'd say, no, of course, that was invalid. But the point, as you said, is the context and interpretation of the experience as it accords with the, the gospel, as the spirits are discerned. That is the, the final test, not when or exactly how the experience happens. Yeah, and I think, Sarah, going all the way back to Augustine, we have a long discussion in theology of provenient grace, uh, the graces of, of preparation which would correlate with that spiritual experience uh, that you just discussed. Uh, I think that even according to Zal's own account, um, this testing of the spirits that I'm calling for to supplement uh, the reliance on John 16 uh, was practiced by Bloom, the younger Bloomhart in his critique of the war ideology uh, in the first, uh, during the World War I years. There was, quite literally, the churches were celebrating the spirit of August when the war began, when the German people uh, put behind their class divisions and their political partisan conflicts and united as one people against the enemy, the spirit of August. Uh, Christoph Blumhard uh, said the spirit of August, that is not the Holy Spirit of Jesus and his father. That's some other spirit. He tested the spirits and saw that national un nationalistic unification through enemy images and war ideology is not the spirit of Christ. 
Okay, so we're we're at time now. So before we we exit this conversation, Dad, what for you is like the the takeaway from this complementary ministry of elder and younger Bloomheart that are that are deeply interrelated and yet ultimately have different focal points? Well, it, I th- I think the, the the two of them together form a unified whole. Uh, I can put it in the form of a of a proposition. If Jesus is the victor then we surely must die so that Jesus may live. But Jesus, and this is what I would add, Jesus lives in the renewal of our lives. If you want to call that a revival, fine. Jesus lives not only in our mortification, but also in our vivification, also in making us alive with newness of life. Uh, so, I th- And I think that... Um, uh, you can put the two ministries together in a complementary way. So I, I like that you mentioned there Jesus, Jesus is victor in the renewal of our lives. It's a nice tie-in because the there has been a proposal among historians of Pentecostalism to actually propose a renaming of the whole complex of things that happened in the 20th century, starting with the Azusa Street Revival, the rise of Pentecostalism and its assorted denominations, then the charismatic renewal within mainline churches, then the explosion of neo-Pentecostal non-denominational churches. And also, I would add within that, the ecumenical movement, which I think is the other by far most significant event, church event of the 20th century, to call this whole complex of events, the renewal. So just like we now say of the Reformation, it's not something that Lutherans only get to have, but it also includes uh, the Reformed and the Anglicans and the Spiritualists and the Catholics. It's a, a whole complex of things that happened in the 16th century. And also, you know, you might even add the uh, the European discovery of the Americas and all the ways that was going to transform the church landscape from there. I, I think this is a, a great proposal because it puts the instead of making it the you know the just the rise of a new set of denominations in the pentecostalism it recognizes that some tremendous things happened in the 20th century with profound global consequences and um a huge uh, christian growth uh, but also new kinds of of crossovers and reconciliations in the charismatic movement and the ecumenical movement and so forth and um i think i like that better than revival partly cuz revival has spoiled as a word but um you know renewal is is a deep, deep biblical theme. And, um, you know, from Paul talking about the renewal of your minds. Um, but it also reminds us that that the need for renewal is actually perennial and a permanent state within the church. It's not a corrective or an alternative to church. It's just actually part of the nature of what church is, or as I've been calling it, the 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 respective ecclesiastical and revival expressions of the gospel. It's notable that in Revelation chapter 3, there's the lukewarm church of Laodicea. So even before the canon of scripture ends (laughs) and it's it's marking time with the first churches, there's already a church that's kind of grown indifferent and needs to be renewed. Um, You can take that as as very depressing, like, you know, Jesus had a short shelf life, or you can say that there is always, it's just intrinsic to the task of being church is the task of also being renewed. And that's why the church needs renewal within the church, because otherwise, like I said, the renewal will drift off and end up just becoming uh, an unrenewed church with the same problems as before. 
Yeah, I really like that a lot, Sarah. That's an intriguing proposal. And I can just briefly connect that to a theme in my own work in these last number of years, which I call the end of Christendom. The end of Christendom, of course, it seems to be a very negative uh, judgment, but it's the end of the religion business in the form of Christianity, as that has prevailed in European and North American uh, understandings uh, of the church. That has collapsed all around us. Yet out of these ruins is emerging this global Christianity that you're talking about, which has been in much fertilized by the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. And uh, if we can work some kinds of integrations, our Lutheran theology, after all, going back to the 16th century, was an attempt to renew Christendom from within. Well, that project has failed. Now, uh, that, that's because the whole corrupt structure is being uh, uh, brought down by the Lord himself. Now, what are we going to do in these rooms? Well, I think we've pointed uh, some ways in which out of this crucifixion, God is working a resurrection. Yeah, well, I'm going to have the last word here and say, it, I don't think it's right to say it failed as if it shouldn't have, because I think the whole point here is that things always have a shelf life and run aground and lose their bearings. And so there's the continual process of renewal. We shouldn't expect that any any church project of any kind or revival project of any kind will last forever. The renewal is simply part of the, the nature of, of the thing that we're doing with the gospel in this world. I stand corrected. <laughs> okay. Well, if Jesus is victor, then why are all these powers and principalities still afflicting us? That's what we'll be talking about next time on the show. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.